I was watching a movie or a show. I don't remember what it, what it was exactly or, or when it was, but all I remember is this thing on TV, okay? And it was about this guy who had been stranded on a deserted island, just completely stranded. So this guy, he gets, he's on a ship, and the ship sinks, something crazy is happening, and he ends up on a stranded island. And he's on this island, and he, he starts to freak out. He's really like, I don't know, what am I going to do? I have to survive. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't have any weapons. I need to learn how to hunt. I need to learn how to, like, gather things. And I need to learn how to, how to you know, what, what's the right berries to eat, which ones can kill me. Like, he's, he's freaking out about all these things. And he's got this goal, right? And his goal at this point in time is just survival. He's like, I... I have to survive. So whatever was going on in normal life is, is done. He's not, it's not normal anymore. He's on this stranded island all by himself, doesn't know what to do. So he's just telling himself every day, okay, I have to do whatever it takes to survive. I have to just take the next step of survival. But then it would show this guy, after he would you know, learn how to hunt, learn how to do all these things, it would show him sitting under a tree or in his tent or whatever he made to, you know, for, for shelter, and it had this piece of paper, and you only saw the back of this piece of paper for the first few times that it showed him looking at it. And then a few more days went by, and he's like learning how to hunt, learning how to fish, like with a spear and everything. And then it shows him sitting at, at the same place with this piece of paper. And then finally it shows you what's on the paper. And it's not just a piece of paper, it's actually a picture. And it's a picture of his family. And so what that is trying to show the audience, the viewers, is that this man had a goal, which was to survive, and his motivation for survival was to get back home, to be with his family. See, he had a goal to survive, and there were times where that was really, really difficult, where he didn't know what to do. He didn't know where his next meal was going to come from. He didn't know what to do at all. But every night when he would look at this picture of his family, it would motivate him to work hard and to do whatever it took in order to survive so that he could get rescued and get back to his family. And of course, at the end of this show or movie, he was rescued and he gets back to his family. It's a great ending. Well, last week we talked about goals, right? You guys remember that? We talked about goals. And we talked about how the Bible, how God gives Christians a goal to work towards. And that goal is to, anybody remember? What's the goal? No, no, no. The goal from last week that God gave us? Good guesses. Good guesses. Somebody, somebody else say it. To be more like Jesus. Exactly. That's our goal. The goal that God has given us is to be more like Jesus, to grow in holiness. And Peter, the, last, the verses that we studied last week, it's all about this goal. To, to you know, work hard, to prepare your minds to be obedient, to be more like Jesus and to be less like the world. Well, now, Peter's going to shift a little bit, and he's going to give us some motivation that will help us stay motivated to reach the goal of being more like Jesus. So, if you've ever set a goal, you've had a goal, and of course, there's motivation in the goal itself, right? If, you're, if your goal is, I want to win a championship this year, your motivation is, that's what I want, and I'm trying to get what I want. But other things might motivate you. Other things may motivate you with certain goals, and motivations will 
help you to stay focused. It will help you whenever things get hard or when you get tired. These things that are motivating you, they help you to not get distracted and not give up on attaining your goal. So Peter, he's given us a goal, which is to be more like Jesus. And now in these verses, he's saying, hey, here's, here's some extra motivation. Here's some motivation. I want you to think about all these things that Jesus has done for you, and these things should now motivate you to keep on striving to achieve that goal of being more like him. So I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 17. In the Christian life, there will be times where life just gets hard. And I've said this to you guys a lot over the last few months, because that's the truth. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the Bible teaches. There's going to be times where you may think about the goal that you have, to be more like Jesus, and you're going to be discouraged. You're, you're going to think, oh no, I, there, there's this sin that I keep falling into, and for some reason I can't stop. You're going to think to yourself, wow, I'm discouraged because I just I keep doing this thing that I don't want to do, or, or whatever it may be. There's going to be times where in your Christian life you don't feel like you're doing a good job of reaching this goal, of pursuing after Christ. But what can help you to push forward and to keep going to attain these goals is to remember these things that Peter talks about. And to think of these things as extra motivation for you to be trying as best, as, as hard as you can to be like Jesus. So it's in moments of weakness where you need to set your mind on the things that Jesus did for you. So you can be motivated to live a holy life by remembering what Jesus did for you. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Here's point number one. Point number one is this. Live in reverent fear of God. You need to, as a Christian, live in reverent fear of God. Of God. So last week we talked about how these are the first commands that Peter has gotten to in his letter. The first 12 verses, he didn't give a single command. He was just talking about how amazing salvation is through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, he gives the first command, which is preparing your minds for action. And now he's giving command after command after command. Well, verse 17, it starts with the word and. And that word is important because what that shows is it's connecting to what he said last time. And if you notice, I've said this like the last three sermons because all of these ideas are building on top of each other. He uses words like therefore or but or and and things like that. And what those words show us is that his ideas, his thoughts are just building on each other. So we have to understand what he's saying now in reference to what he has said before. So he says something really interesting here. He says, and if you call on him as father. Hey, look, I'm just going to let you guys know we're having some light 
things happen, so if they flicker, just try to ignore it. And if they all go out, I'm just going to keep preaching, okay? But just so you know, we know that it's happening, and we're working on it. But they probably will keep doing that through the sermon, okay? Cool. Peter says something really interesting here. He says, and if you call on him as a father. He's talking about God. So is Peter saying here that Christians get to pick and choose if they refer to God as Father? What do you think? No? You're right. He's not saying that. He's not saying you get to choose if you call him Father. Really, this is another way of saying if you are a Christian. Because all Christians have God as Father. So when he says, and if you call on him as Father, he's saying, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, You need to listen closely to what he's about to say. Because Christians have God as Father. God created you. He saved you. He adopted you. He redeemed you. He is your heavenly Father. So he's saying, okay, Christians, listen up. Listen closely. And then he describes your Father. He describes your heavenly Father. And he says, your Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So we have God the Father is the judge of the universe. He created it all, he owns it all, and he judges all the universe. So this means, first of all, that when this world comes to an end, when God says time is up and he sends Jesus to come back and it starts the, the end and all these things that you read about in the book of Revelation start to take place and then bam, when it's all said and done and everything's over and we're standing before God's throne and he's judging everyone, that's final judgment. So God as judge is the final judge and he's the one who's going to look at his people, the ones who trusted in him, And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's going to let you into the new heavens and new earth. And then, for those that do not trust in Jesus, God's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. The final judgment of all people that's coming one day. No one knows when except God himself. But the judgment here that Peter is specifically referring to is the judgment that God is is putting into action right now. While we are living on this earth, God is judging currently. As you live your life on earth, God is judging you. He's disciplining you. That's another way to understand judging. God, as Father, is disciplining His children. Have you ever been disciplined by your parents before? Yeah, everybody probably has been. Yeah. Well, God, as our Father, and because He loves us, He disciplines us. And he does this impartially. That means that God does not have favorites. Have you guys ever thought before, like, hmm, I wonder who my parents' favorite kid is? You ever thought that before? Yeah? Who's confident to say, like, I'm definitely the favorite? Wow, wow, okay, okay. It doesn't count if you're the only child, though, so. (laughs) Well, you know, God, God judges impartially. God doesn't play favorites like this. God is the judge, and God is just. That means God's judgments, God's discipline will always be perfect. It will always be right. I want you to think about how we understand a judge today. Like, if you go to court, and the judge is up there with the gavel, you know, and he's the big robes, that kind of judge. 
What if, what if he let this judge let someone off the hook who did something illegal, and his only reasoning was, because I like you more than I like the other person, you're free to go. What would you say to that? What if, what if you were the person, you both did something wrong. You and this other person, you're at court, you both did something wrong, and, you're, and this other person is across the room, and the judge says, I like you better than you. You're free to go, but you have to go to jail. You'd be like, we did the same thing. That doesn't make sense. That judge is partial. That judge would, is playing favorites. And if a judge was to have favorites... Does that make the judge good? No, it does not. It makes the judge unjust. And it makes the judge wicked for not being impartial. God judges impartially. And it says that God judges based off the deeds, the actions of all people. So this is saying that God will discipline his children when they misbehave. When God's people, when God's children are, are sinning in habitual sin, when they're living in sin, when they're doing something that God says is wrong, God will discipline his children because he is a loving father. Proverbs 3 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So you need to understand that God disciplines his children because he loves. Think about when your parents discipline you. They're not doing it because they enjoy getting you in trouble. In fact, they probably hate when they have to discipline you. When you were young and your parents would spank you if they did that. My parents did that to me. My parents didn't enjoy spanking me. You think that they got joy out of it? No, of course not. But they did it because they loved me, because they were correcting me, they were disciplining me. So when your parents say, you're grounded, when they say, you can't hang out with your friends, this is, you're, you're, you're under discipline, they're not doing it because they just are like, oh, I can't wait to discipline my son today, my daughter today. They're like, oh man, like, to teach you a lesson, because I love you, I have to discipline you. And God does the same with his people, with his children. And he does it impartially. That means that he judges all of his children. That means that if I did something bad and Luke did something equally as bad, God would never say, oh, you know what, I like, I like Jacob better. So he, there's no discipline for him, but Luke, you have, you have discipline. That's not how God works. God is just. God is good. He judges impartially. So God disciplines his people. And how does God discipline? Well, it looks a lot different for anybody and everybody. It could be different in everybody's life. Here's some ways that God will discipline. He might discipline you by allowing you to go through something difficult. He may correct you. He may send you some kind of wake-up call by allowing you to go through a hard time. It might be sickness. It might be trouble at school, trouble at home. It might be going through a hard time with friends or with family. Some kind of difficult situation. God might use that as discipline. If you've been sinning, if you've been doing something wrong, if, if he needs to correct you. And a lot of times, the natural consequences of sin 
is actually God's discipline. And here's what I mean. The natural consequences of sin. If you lie and you get caught in your lie, what would happen? Somebody tell me. If you lie to your parents and you get caught, what are the natural consequences of that lie? Somebody tell me. What do your parents do if they catch you in a lie? Yeah, what do they do specifically? What might they do? Time out? You still go to time out? Ground you? Take away something of yours? They will punish you. They will discipline you somehow, right? Am I right about that? Or do your parents not do anything? Yeah? Okay. Well, sometimes God uses the natural consequences as his own consequences, as his own discipline. Okay, what about this? Let's say that you go to Smart and Final and you steal your favorite flavor of ice cream and you get caught. What happens? What's the natural consequences? What do you think? What? Yeah, there could be a fine. What, what's the worst thing that could happen? Your dad catches you because he's a cop. Right, they could say, oh, whoa, whoa, I'm going to call the police. They would have every right to say, you're stealing from the store, I'm going to call the police. And there's discipline that comes with that. And so sometimes God disciplines his children just by the natural consequences that sin brings about. Here's one more. Here's one more. Let's say that you're at school or you're at home doing your school because you're homeschooled and you cheat. But let's say that you don't get caught. You don't get caught cheating, but you did cheat. What, what is the natural consequence to cheating? Anybody know? You might fail because you don't understand what you just cheated on, right? You got something? Guilt. You might feel guilty about it. That's the consequence. Yeah. So the point is, if you cheat and you don't even get caught, these things will happen. Because if you cheat on something and you don't really learn the material, are you going to be able to pass the test? Probably not, because you didn't learn it, because you cheated. Anyways, guys, look, the point is, God disciplines his children. He, he lets his children, or sometimes it's not just that he lets, he will actually put you through it on purpose. It is his plan, right, to discipline you, because you need to learn, because he's trying to show you what you're doing in your life that isn't pleasing to him. And he knows that the best thing for you is to be more like Jesus. So he will discipline his children to make them more like Jesus. Think about it. When your parents discipline you, what is the big, what's the goal? What are they really after? Say it louder. They don't want you to do it again because they want you to behave. They want you to do the right thing. They want you to grow up doing the right thing. You understand? It was very similar to how God disciplines his children. He disciplines because he wants his children to do the right thing, to honor Jesus, to be obedient. He disciplines out of his love. I know I maybe already kind of said this, but I'll, I'll say it again to help us understand. Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Sibling, I've got a sibling. I want you to imagine that you and your sibling, huh, let's, let's say that both of you, Together, go to Smart and Final, and you say, hey, we're going to steal our favorite flavor of ice cream. You go in, you get that ice cream, you steal it, you run out the store, you get it home, and you're eating that ice cream, and your parents walk in the kitchen, and they're like, whoa, whoa, where'd you get that ice cream? 
and, and then you, you tell them the truth because you feel guilty. And they're like, okay, you stole it. You did it together. And you're like, yeah, it was, it was, we did it together. It was both of our idea. And, you're, and, you're, and your mom goes, okay, well, guess what? You're in trouble, but you're not. What would you say? You'd be like, wait a second. We, we, we did it together. How, how come I'm not in trouble too? You wouldn't like that, would you? Would anybody like that? No, every one of us would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not fair. That's not, you do have a favorite, mom. That's what you would say. I knew it. I knew you had a favorite. That's what you would say, right? God is your father and he judges impartially. He does this because he is a good and loving and just father. And Peter says, because he judges impartially, because you know that God is judging and he is going to discipline you when you do something that's not honoring to him, here's what you need to do. You need to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And other translations will say something very similar to what we said in our first point. Conduct yourselves in reverent fear. I want you to remember, we talked about that word exile way back, like five weeks ago. The word exile, let's remember, means your time on earth. Because you are in exile. As a Christian, your citizenship belongs where? In heaven, right? Your citizenship is in heaven if you're a Christian. You are in exile. Your, your true home is not earth. Your true home is heaven. So Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear while you are living on earth. He's saying that you need to live your life on earth with a reverent fear of God. Now this word reverent, have you guys heard this word before? Reverent fear. Here's what it means. It essentially means to be respectful. To have a respect for God. This respect is deeply admiring God and then behaving accordingly. Having a deep respect and love for God and then behaving, conducting your life as God desires you to do. Having reverence for God. And he says, have this reverent fear. We talk about fearing God. That's, all, that's what revival was about, right? Who was that revival? We learned a lot about fearing God, so we're not going to preach a sermon about that primarily, okay? Fearing God is loving Him and, and wanting to obey Him and showing God the respect that He deserves. That's what you do if you fear God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All over the Bible, God's word says to fear God. Doesn't mean that we're like, like over in, you know, in the corner, like trembling and fearing because you're so afraid. Not like that. It means reverent respect, reverent fear of God. Conducting your life in a way that pleases God because of your reverence and your fear of Him. It's, it's understanding that He is holy, that He is just, that He is righteous. And then living your life properly in response. Living your life in obedience to him. Now, sometimes this can be described as having a healthy fear of God. Now, I think that I already know enough about you from the stories I've told to, to know the answer to this question, but you guys have a healthy fear of your parents, don't you? A healthy fear of your parents. You know what I mean by that? This healthy fear of your parents will cause you to respect them and to obey them. Because you know that if you don't respect them and you don't obey them, then they can punish you and they'll discipline you. 
but not just because you're afraid of the punishment and the discipline, but you have healthy fear of them because you love them. And because deep down, you really don't want to do something that upsets them, do you? You want them to be pleased with you because they're your parents. You have a healthy fear of your parents. We should have the same kind of reverent fear for God. We fear him because we love him and we want him to be pleased with us and with our lives. So he says to conduct yourself. The word conduct, very similar. It's spelled the exact same as the word used that we talked about last week. Conduct, it's the same idea. To conduct yourselves with the fear of God is to have a pattern of living like Jesus wants you to live, of being obedient. So he says, conduct, have this conduct. Live like Jesus, be like Jesus. So if you're going to live your life, if if you're going to be behaving in this way, conducting yourself with fear, how do you think you're going to live? We've already said it. You're going to respect God. You're going to obey God. You're going to strive to be obedient and pleasing to Him. And again, the fear that we have is not a fear as Christians of being sent to hell. Because if you put your trust in Jesus, you know that there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Meaning if you've put your trust in Him, you're not fearing God in the sense of, oh no, what if I'm not, what, what, if, what if He's still going to send me to hell? You don't have to fear that if you put your trust in Christ. Your fear for him is this reverent and respectful fear. So every single day when you wake up, every day at the start of your day, you need to have a mindset of, I'm going to conduct myself with reverent fear of God. I'm going to do everything I can to be obedient to God today. When I'm tempted... I'm going to pray and I'm going to try my hardest to get out of it because I know that the Bible says when I'm tempted, he's always provided a way out. When people at school are talking about inappropriate things and when they're gossiping about people, I'm not going to join in and gossip. I'm not going to join in in this inappropriate conversation. I'm going to do everything that I can to conduct myself in fear of God, this reverent fear of God. I mean, you just wake up every morning and say, God, Please help me to respect you today. Help me to obey you today. Help me to behave in a way that is fearing you, that is giving you the reverent fear that you deserve. So as Peter is saying, we need to have fear of God, reverent fear of God. So Peter continues in verse 18. He's giving us more reasons, more motivation to strive after holiness. So he's already talked about we have God, and he's a good God. He's a loving Father. He loves us, so that should motivate us to be holy, to pursue what Jesus says to pursue, because you know that you have a loving Father who doesn't have favorites, who judges impartially. The motivation also is that whenever you're sinning and when you're living in sin, the Bible says that God will discipline you and you don't want to be disciplined by God. You want him to be pleased with your life. That can be a motivation. That's a fine motivation for you to live in holiness, to be like Jesus, because you don't want God to be upset with you. You don't want God to be displeased with you. So here's motivation is to be pursuing holiness. And then Peter gives more in verse 18. He says, Knowing, 
So he's saying, hey, here, here's some motivation. You just need to know these things. Knowing that you were ransomed. That's an awesome word we're going to talk about. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's point two. Treasure Christ above everything. Treasure Christ above everything. So Peter uses these verses here and he explains exactly what Jesus did for Christians. And it's important that you understand the words that Peter is using. That you understand what these words mean and how it applies to what Jesus did for you. So what what Peter is saying is that God redeemed you. He rescued you from your sinful state At a great cost. It cost God something great for him to redeem you. What did it cost him? The precious blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Jesus was spilled. He was killed. He took the wrath of God in order for you to be made right. In order for you to be redeemed. So this word ransom, it says you were ransomed. A ransom is obtaining the release of a prisoner by making a payment demanded. You guys have probably heard stories or seen this in movies where you've got opposing armies and one army calls the other and they say, hey, we've got some of your guys captured and the only way we're going to give them back to you is if you pay us this amount of money or, or, or if, you, if you leave our territory, you leave us alone, that's the only way you're going to get your guys back. And if you don't, then it's not going to be good for them. That's a ransom, right? Maybe you've heard stories of people getting kidnapped and the kidnappers calling the parents and saying, hey, I've got your kid, and if you don't pay me $5 million, then you're never going to see your kid again. That's called a ransom, okay? And the Bible says that you and I, as Christians, were ransomed. It's crazy to think about. You were a slave to sin. You were enslaved to the power of of sin. And your imprisonment, your slavery to sin, it demanded a payment. It cost something for you to be released from being a ransom. The wrath of God had to be satisfied. Something had to be done for you to be ransomed, for you to be rescued. And the blood of Jesus paid for your release. The blood of Jesus. You understand that? That you were a ransom. And because Jesus Christ died on the cross and took the wrath of God and he rose again on the third day, you were let go. You were released from the power of sin. You were released from being under the wrath of God. You were ransomed. You were set free because of what Jesus did for you. So think about if you had gotten kidnapped and your parents did whatever it took to come up with $5 million and they paid $5 million. How grateful would you be, of course? You'd be like, wow, I don't even know how you did it. That's a lot of money. Like, thank you. Oh, you would be so great. You understand that being ransomed, being, being freed from your sin is so much better than the whole $5 million thing. Because without being freed from your sin, without being rescued, without being ransomed in this way, 
you would be headed for hell. You understand? Your sin would still be on you. You don't understand that this is what Jesus did for you, that he was your ransom. He ransomed you from the feudal ways of your forefathers, is what it says. Feudal means pointless, meaningless. And the ways, that's, that's like that word conduct, patterns, the way they were living their lives. So it's, it's saying, hey, the way that the forefathers, the generations before them were under sin because of what Adam and Eve, the, the real forefathers, what they did, they sinned because of their sin. You were stuck in that. And you had to be rescued. And so Jesus was the ransom, the payment for you to have a relationship with God. He willingly went to the cross. He shed his blood for you so that you could be ransomed, so that you could have a relationship with God. So I hope that you understand that. I hope you understand exactly what Jesus did for you. And the fact that he did this for you, if you've put your trust in him, when you think about, wow, I was ransomed because Jesus spilled his precious blood for me, that should then motivate you. That should make you go, wow, I just want to obey him now. I, I just want to love him as best as I can today. I want to love him with my whole heart. I want to follow him with my whole life because of what he did for me. Because I have a good God who loves me and, and he is a, he's an impartial judge. He's good and he's just and he's righteous. And because he sent Jesus and he paid for my sin and he provided a way for me to go to heaven. Because he did all these things, I just want to be holy. I just want to be like Jesus. I just want to make God happy. I want to please God with my life because of all of these things. See, these things should motivate you to live your life in a way that God is pleased with. And then Peter, he adds this little bit about the lamb without blemish or spot. Connecting things to the Old Testament, of course. These lambs, these, these spotless lambs, they had to be sacrificed. Like Numbers chapter 6 talks about how a lamb without blemish was required for a sin offering. So people in the Old Testament... God said, if you, if you want your sin to be forgiven, then you have to kill these lambs and they can't have a spot on them. They can't have anything wrong with them. They have to be the best of, of the flock. You have to sacrifice that and the spilled blood is going to temporarily atone. It's going to temporarily make you right. And so, of course, these sacrifices over and over and over again, they never worked fully. They were always pointing forward to Jesus pointing forward to the true, perfect, spotless Lamb of God without blemish or spot. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. No sin, you understand? No blemish, no spot. That means no sin. Nothing wrong with Jesus. Died on the cross, took the punishment for your sin, and His sacrifice was enough because He was the perfect Lamb of God. Like John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that when he saw Jesus coming. He said, Behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You need to understand that Jesus was, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that Israel was waiting for. The ultimate sacrifice of sin for sin that you can put your trust in Jesus and be forgiven. So look, I want you to treasure Jesus. Treasure him. Another word for treasure is to cherish, to love deeply. 
Your love and, and your, the, the way that you treasure Christ should be more of a motivation for you to say, because I treasure you, because I love you so much for what you've done for me, I want to obey you. I want to please you. I want to live the way that you say I should live because I treasure you, Jesus. I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story about myself, but it's okay. Because I trust that you're not going to go tell a ton of people, are you? You probably will, but it's fine. It's fine. When I was younger, I had, I'm going to be even more specific so you don't make fun of me even worse. But when I was very young, when I was little, when I was like two and three, let's put it that way. I had this item that I treasured, that I loved. I would go everywhere with this thing. Treasured it above every other thing that I had. Any guesses? Good guess, good guess. No, no, it was a, um, it was a Tickle Me Elmo. It was a Tickle Me Elmo. Do you guys know what Elmo is? Well, this Elmo, it was called Tickle Me Elmo because you would tickle it and Elmo would laugh. And I'm not kidding. Like, I actually can hear his laugh in my brain because of how much I would carry this Elmo toy around. I loved this Elmo toy. You know what's really funny is my parents actually still have it. They still have it. Noah has it now? Oh, he, we have it? I, have, I love it so much, I have it. I, I would have brought it. I should have brought it. I don't know. Maybe I'll bring it tomorrow. I don't know. Anyways, listen, the point is, I had this Elmo toy, and I treasured it. I cherished it when I was little. I would go everywhere with it. It didn't matter where I was. If I was at church, if I was at preschool, if I was just riding in the car seat, I had to have this Elmo. I treasured Elmo more than I treasured any other thing, any other possession that I had. And maybe you're thinking about something in your mind right now that you treasured a lot when you were little. Maybe you treasure something right now. But I want you to think about the way that you love this thing and how you love it more than all the other things that you have. You need to treasure Jesus Christ above everything. The way that you love Jesus, you need to treasure his word above everything. You need to love God's word you need to say, I can't wait to read the Bible today because I can't wait to hear from Jesus. I can't wait to hear from God's word. I love him. I cherish him. I treasure Jesus above all else. And the way that you treasure him, it should then push you to say, I want to share him with people. I want to share him. You know, when I was two and three and I had this Elmo, you know what I did with it? I would be like, you want to see? You want to see it? And I would show everybody because I loved it. I would shove it in their faces and I would just like put it, you need to be that way with Jesus. You need to treasure Jesus so much that you're like, I've got to tell you about my Savior. I've got to tell you about what he did. He, he ransomed me. He died for me. He spilled his blood for me. He went to the cross and he took the wrath of God for me. Can I please tell you about Jesus? So do you treasure Christ above everything? You need to treasure him. You need to think about what he's done for you and it will motivate you to to treasure him. It'll motivate you to put him before everything. So the last couple verses here, Peter, he talks about how you were ransomed, how the precious blood of Jesus was spilled, and, and then what he does, he goes into detail about God's plan of redemption. 
Here's what he says. He was foreknown. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He was foreknown. Remember, we've seen this word before, foreknown. God knows it was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen because he planned it to happen. He foreknew. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even created, Jesus was foreknown. It was God's plan all along for Jesus to come. And he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This was plans, God's plan all along, and you need to praise God for it. So here's point number three. I want you to praise God for his redemptive plan. It was God's plan all along. He didn't just randomly think of it one day. You understand? It wasn't like when Adam and Eve sinned, he was like, "Uh uh-oh, that's a curveball. What do I do to fix this? That's not at all what happened. It was God's plan all along. Jesus, he, he was made manifest. That means he was shown at the last times. Now, there's a lot of talk about the last times, but here's what the last times are. The last times, biblically defined, are the time between when Jesus first came and was born and when he's going to come back the second time. Which means that, guess what? Right now, we're living in the last days. We don't know when Jesus could. He could come back any minute, any second. It may be another 6,000 years. We don't know. But we're living in the last days. So Jesus, this Jesus that God foreknew that, that he that. He was there from the beginning. He was made manifest. He was shown. And here's what I want you to see. The Bible says this was done for your sake. It was done for the sake of you. You understand? God set this plan in motion to save you for your salvation. He knew that you were going to sin. He knew knew what they were going to do. And he said, I'm going to send a Savior to save these people. So what I'm saying is that we need to praise God because of his redemptive plan, his plan to redeem, his plan to ransom you. This plan has been a plan all along. We need to say, God, thank you for your plan. Thank you that you did this for me, that you've saved me, that you've sent your son to die for me, that that I put my trust. God, thank you for this. So here's the last motivation I want you to think about, the motivation of God, you love me so much that you saved me. You love me so much that you planned this all along, that, that this, is, this is your plan for me. So God, because you planned for this to happen, because you love me this way, I just, I want to obey you. I want to be holy. I want to be more like Jesus. So listen, as you're going about your life, I want you to remember the things that Peter talked about because it should push you and motivate you to holiness. Let's pray. God, please help us to remember what we've read in your word tonight. Please help us to be grateful for you, for your plan, for what Jesus did. God, help us to treasure you above everything. God, please help us to do that. If anyone here has not put their trust in you, I pray that tonight will be the night they do so. We're grateful for who you are, for what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.